scripture reading this morning comes from two places. As we begin our new series in Mark, Isaiah 53, 4-5, and Mark 1, 1-11. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And the reading from Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is a new year. We begin a new sermon series and a new opportunity for us to ask ourselves a question that every age of the church has had to ask, and that is this. Uh, what is the message of Christianity? How do we tell that story in 2023? What would you decide to include in that story, to exclude? You know, uh, when I was doing youth ministry, every year I would, I would start off and make my students write out responses to a question on a sheet of paper, and there was just one question. What is the gospel? And I would play distracting music in the background, and I would give them one minute to write down as much as they could about what the gospel is. It was fantastic. Um, and inevitably, I would receive some really surprising responses. Uh, some were, were really, surprisingly really good responses to the gospel. And, and there were others that were surprising because despite the fact that these kids that were in youth group grew up in a Christian home, uh, they even went to Christian schools, they, they had a Christian worldview, uh, the responses to the gospel were almost shocking to me. Uh, the gospel is uh, to be a good person. The gospel is, is to, to, to be right. Uh, the gospel is, is to, uh, you know, just about um, the fact that I'm a sinner and there, I have no worth outside of that. Uh, sometimes we become so focused on the finer details of church and the finer details of our faith that we get bogged down in answering the question of what is the gospel. And this is not just youth kids, is it? Uh, this is all of us as well. So how do we translate the gospel for the times that we're in? What is good news? So this is why for the next four months we're gonna be going through the book of Mark. Uh, I believe that there is no greater way to articulate, understand, and approach the gospel for this season than the book of Mark. Uh, from now, we'll be focusing on the narratives, and I'm calling the series Miracles in Mark, to show the miraculous works of Christ 
to answer this question, this all-important question of what is the gospel for all who hear it? How is this good news for you and I today? What does it not only mean for just as individual Christians, what does the gospel mean for our society, for our culture? What does the gospel mean for the city of Columbia, for the region of Howard County? So with that, we're diving straight away into the very first words of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, 1 through uh, 11. And we're going to answer just four basic questions in our time today. One, who is Jesus to Mark? Two, who is Jesus to John the Baptist? Uh, Three, who is Jesus to God? And finally, who is Jesus to you? So those are those four questions we're going to try and answer today. So who is Jesus to Mark? In order to fully understand this question, uh, we have to time travel back, all the way back to roughly 30-some years after the death of Jesus and his resurrection. So the year is approximately around 64 to 65 AD. Uh, there's this crazy egomaniac as the emperor of Rome. Y'all, Jeopardy folks, you all know who the emperor of Rome was then. The emperor Nero, right? Nero, who's very much like if not even worse than King Herod, who we talked about last week. He is the worst egomaniac that ever existed, right? His irresponsible relationship with the leadership of Rome, uh, Nero caused Rome to literally go up in flames. And searching for a scapegoat, Emperor Nero blamed Christians, who at this time were flying a little bit under the radar. Uh, Since the pressure of the government was to try and find someone to blame for the burning of Rome, this relatively obscure religion of Christianity was now seen as the greatest threat to society. Christians suddenly were pulled from their homes, martyred, killed, stripped of their possessions, forced to live in catacombs. And the question that arises out of this religion now in this period of immense suffering, of political and social persecution, oppression and injustice from the evil and the powerful, certainly comes to the question of, can I really believe and trust in the gospel? I mean, how can this be good news to the church in Rome at this period of time? How can this be good news when there's so much suffering around them? When the injustice of the world and systems leave us all in devastation and ruin, what does the gospel mean? Who is Jesus to Mark? So the situation in the book of Mark should lead us to see some obvious parallels, right? Uh, not just in their generation, but in ours, and in every generation of believers. Christians will always face a Nero, a great injustice, a great oppression, a great malediction. And so the question for us is that the answer for what is the gospel cannot be found outside of what Scripture teaches us. Uh, The answer to our suffering, in other words, isn't a release from suffering. The answer to our suffering is an escape from it. Why? For those of you who have ever tried to go into escapism, you'll know that they don't deal with the real root problem of suffering. They are just simply what they say that they are, escapes. A drug that dulls the pain that inevitably returns in some other form or some other trauma in some other situation. So Mark, in his answer to Christians in Rome, his answer to the question of who is Jesus, he is trying to say this. This is his main thesis, okay? Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the Son of God. 
If you had to sum up the book, uh, the Gospel of Mark, in really just one idea, it's the idea that Jesus is the suffering servant and Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's a very interesting way to begin a story, mainly because before this, no one has ever written what is now known as a witness document. Mark paved the way for all of the other gospel writers. He was the first gospel. It set into motion all the other gospel writings. The word itself, gospel, was a borrowed phrase from Roman terminology, which is actually a word that meant joyful tidings, right? The joy that was found in the history books of Rome for completed events of victory and celebration. So Mark's answer to the question of who is Jesus to a suffering Christian family in Rome who is being killed and persecuted is that Jesus, the Son of God, has bore the same pain that you have. But this is leading us to joyful tidings. This is leading us to victory. So in other words, everything that proceeds in this book, Mark has just told us in these opening verses that the sufferings of Jesus will lead our salvation. And as you see, the trajectory of this book goes from one of amazement and marvel of the people to rejection and leading to Jesus' death. If you read the opening uh, chapters of Mark, you will begin to see that Jesus' ministry is, is incredibly well received, and it just goes in this sharp decline as you go through the gospel of Mark. And it just keeps on plummeting all the way to his death. So the gospel is going to sound like a tragedy for most of its contents because Jesus' life isn't filled with the grandness of the kingdom that brings about prosperity and blessedness, at least what we understand to be prosperity and blessedness. Jesus' gospel is going to actually look a lot like Nero's Rome. It's going to look a lot like the situation of 2020, of maybe 2023. We hope not, but maybe a world that seems like an endless barrage of trauma every day being posted on our news feeds. And what Mark's gospel tells us is that our sufferings have a context. Our sufferings are not meaningless. Our sufferings point to another. In other words, Mark's gospel does an amazing thing that a lot of, a lot of uh, our experiences try to do. Mark's gospel doesn't minimize the trials of the Christian experience. He's not trying to say that what Christians are experiencing right now, oh, it's not as bad as you think it is. He's not trying to minimize or relativize the sufferings that Christians in Nero's age or today are experiencing. He's, trying, so he's just telling us, just suck it up. Endure the pain. It's all right. No, Mark is showing that God himself has empathy with our struggles. God is there feeling exactly what you're feeling. God himself knows your sufferings exactly as you experience them. Jesus is not a distant reality in the midst of your struggle. He is right there with you. So only in a gospel do we find a story of tragedy that is overcome through the death of God himself. Only in this story does God con himself, himself to becoming man. Every other religion of the Roman Empire would have found this God to be too weak to worship, too feeble, unthinkable for God to display his power by humbling himself down. The sufferings of Jesus, however, in Mark's gospel lead to our salvation. So Christians in Mark's day and in ours shouldn't lose heart 
not because your sufferings aren't real, or suffering should be viewed as less than the sufferings of Christ, but rather that their sufferings place them in the likeness of the very salvation that was won for them. Do you see that? So what this also means is that this puts into perspective the kinds of sufferings that we willingly endure. You know, what is interesting is that all major worldviews, not just religions, but all major cultural worldviews, have some sort of idea of fulfillment that is based on suffering. All right, so like workout culture. Love's talking about, you know, breaking your body down so that you can build it back up. You need to have this mamba mentality, right, that does everything to be successful, sacrificing every part of yourself to achieve it, no matter if your body can sustain that level of working out. <laughs> Work culture is something that we don't even consider because the sacrifices and sufferings we place to uphold the model life is, is considered a norm, right? but it's considered to be the, fast way, uh, the pathway to a fast track of promotion, influence, power, and wealth. Like, kill yourself. Have pride in killing yourself for your job and your career. And there's always that person in your workplace that gives more hours, right? Sacrifices more of their time, their family, their social life in order to achieve results, and that's the bar. That's the standard. All right, what about home? There's this Home culture, right? Th those whose primary responsibilities are taking care of their children are told that the sacrifices of suffering are completely worth it because at the end, you will have that model house, that model children that you've always wanted. Your sufferings will lead to the perfect home situation. Right? So he, as, as long as you can just endure the suffering long enough. You see, in other words, in all these examples I'm giving here, we embrace suffering for ourselves because the world has taught us that suffering your own personal suffering, suffering can lead to your own personal salvation. This suffering can lead you to the promised land of the money that you want to make, the kind of family that you want, or the kind of work or body that you want to achieve. So the Gospel of Mark is doing something completely different by shifting all of this on its head, by reminding us that the sufferings that we endure or the sufferings that we choose to endure are not the source of your salvation. It's the sufferings of the Son of God, bore for our sins, releasing us from the pressure and the needs to carry all the weight of the world, to stop trying to end our sufferings apart from His suffering. It's about placing our trust in the Lord who is guiding us now through both the sufferings outside of us and inside of us. It's about the blind going to Jesus asking for sight, the lepers asking Jesus to be healed, the dead raised to life, the seas calm, the hungry fed, those who are readying themselves to spend an eternity of judgment in God's wrath, now all of a sudden being brought into new life because of the everlasting freedom and joy brought through his blood on the cross shed for us. He came to bring good news, joyful tidings, that this world seems so broken, that our lives seem so broken, that the things that cause us to be ostracized, oppressed, hurt, marginalized from society, that these people, these situations, these struggles, these hardships, these pains are actually indicators that we are nearer to the grace of God rather than being far removed from it. That's the good news of Mark's day and it's certainly great news for all of us here. So... Mark is telling us if these things are true, if this Jesus, and if we are his disciples of this suffering servant, 
then we too must follow the pathway of the wilderness that he walked, that his messenger from Isaiah walked as well. And that leads us to our second question here. Who is Jesus to John the Baptist in our text today? Now, first we have to acknowledge something about John the Baptist first. He isn't exactly the kind of guy you would expect to be the prophet of the coming Messiah. John isn't a herald or an orator from the social elite class of Jerusalem or Judea. He isn't a part of the Roman aristocracies or hold any real political power or might. He is from, as our text here says, from the wilderness, which back then meant you were from the rough part of the neighborhood. <laughs> He wore clothing out of camel's hair, ate locusts and wild honey. This was essentially the lifestyle of a nomad, an exile, a weirdo, a freak. John comes from the wilderness. This is designated the place of exile, the place of darkness and suffering. And he steps into the narrative preaching that the Son of God would come and bring about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For John to say this would be strange enough, looking the way that he does. For people to come and respond in faith to John's message demonstrated a particular kind of authority that was unbelievable. The entire Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem caught wind of John the Baptist, and he essentially goes viral. He becomes this influencer. And now, notice what John does in this moment. Rather than leveraging this for his own gain, he tells us exactly what he believes about this question of who is Jesus. What does he say? After me comes the one more powerful than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John said, basically, the activity that a common Hebrew slave would do for their master, I cannot even do that for this Jesus. John the Baptist, rather than using his own platform for the expansion of his own ministry, realizes the purpose of his life is for Jesus to become greater in every single way. And in every way, he must relate himself properly to this Jesus that he loves and worships. I believe that this is a really important message for us to hear in our age and era where self-promotion is just about everywhere you go. Uh, you cannot go a day in your life without seeing self-promotion or feeling the pull towards self-promotion about everything and anything in your life. All right, uh, for those of you over 35, the kids call it clout chasing, okay? And if you're laughing at the term, you'll be surprised to hear that a report done by The Atlantic in uh, 2019 researching the expanse of society of this word called clout, okay? Viral trends for the sake of views and the likes lead swaths of teenagers and young adults in 2019 to go into their local bodegas and Target stores to lick ice cream cartons and place them in the back of freezers. Perhaps my favorite part of the article is the fact that self-help books that came out of the last several years regarding clout. To quote The Atlantic, self-help books is dedicated to acquiring and wielding clout. Examples include clout, the art and science of influential web content, and clout, finding and using your power at work, and clout, my favorite, discover and unleash your God-given influence. That's what Christianity can feel like in our modern day and age. The gift of our lives that we can use to demonstrate the grace of God working through our lives, the power of God to make his name greater, often falls with us taking the credit for something that he has done and for something that he continues to do. John the Baptist sees the clout that is coming his way. 
And he wants to make sure that the people of God understand that he's not just there to be the sort of biblical version of the liver king. He's, he's there because his whole message, his entire existence of his being is to make the people know that though he baptizes with water, this is just a symbol of the one who would come that would give the power of salvation itself, the Holy Spirit to the world. He is just a herald of the greater gift, the person of Jesus. And in doing this, by the way, John the Baptist is imitating the person of Jesus far greater than the platform of trying to make his name bigger or trying to make his brand greater. Jesus comes as a person of servanthood, and so too must his disciples. I think of no greater tragedy of, of this than the story of Mars Hill Church. Many of you might be familiar with the Mars Hill story, uh, even listen to the podcast, which I would recommend if you haven't listened to, you should listen to. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, this was at a time where the American church, where, where celebrity culture of Christianity had reached a peak of unchecked abuses, horrors, and the abuse of sh the flock that God had called uh, these Mars Hill pastors to shepherd and care for. And while there were people who came out of that experience rooted more deeply and faithfully because of Mars Hill, ultimately, Mars Hill, in trying to make a great name for itself, devastated and destroyed uh, a lot of uh, their congregation members because it was ultimately about their own name rather than the name of Christ. And so this Jesus arrives to John in the narrative, not coming from a major metropolitan city, he comes from Nazareth, a town with a population of less than 500 people. And this great one who John couldn't even untie his sandals comes to be baptized by John himself. Now what is going on here in this passage? Why is Jesus being baptized by John? In order to answer this question, we need to answer our third question, which is who is Jesus to God himself? There are many who erroneously believe, by the way, and think that at this moment, Jesus was just a normal man, and at this moment of his baptism, Jesus sort of becomes God. This is uh, that this baptism somehow transformed this ordinary plain man, some nobody from Galilee, and transforms him into God's own son. Uh, th that is a heresy actually called adoptionism that has a nice enough sounding name, but the reality of the situation is that Jesus does not become God at this moment of his baptism. We must rightfully reject that idea. No, the purpose of the baptism that's being performed on Jesus has nothing to do with the substance of something being attached to the person of Jesus. Rather, the text of Mark is giving us everything we need to know regarding what is happening here. And there's three really important things here about the, his baptism. So what do we see here? First, that the heavens are being torn open. This language is chosen by Mark not just to give some elaborate symbolism or this majestic view. It's, it, he's writing to a group of Christians who would have actually been very intimately familiar with the Old Testament and the prophet Isaiah, which is why he quotes Isaiah at the beginning of this passage. So in particular, the heavens being torn open or the heavens being rended is a direct fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah 64, 1 through 3, if you could have that on the screen. It's also an example of the Jewish traditions that elaborated on Isaiah's vintage. So look at Isaiah 64, one through three. Would you rend the heavens? Would you open up the heavens and come down? This was a sign of the coming savior. Not only that, Jewish tradition expanded upon this with an apocryphal book called the Testament of Levi, which we can have up here. 
um, that the heavens will be opened, and from the temple of the glory, sanctification will come upon him with a fatherly voice as from Abraham to Isaac. Even in the apocryphal Jewish tradition, they would have recognized that this imagery of the heavens being opened means that the Messiah is on his way, means that the Messiah is arriving. And so, Jesus is fulfilling this role of the Messiah by being obedient to the cause his father has caused him to enter into, right? So that's the first thing that we see. Now, what's the second thing that we see? That the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Now, this is a remarkable statement in any era, right, to see the Spirit coming down on a person, but it would have been even far greater for those living in Jesus' time. Now, you've got to think back, why is this? Because the Spirit of the Lord has been largely absent from the Israelite community for over 500 years. 500 years of the Spirit's silence. 500 years where the Spirit of the Lord had ceased to speak through prophets, ceased to speak through miracles, ceased to uh, speak through signs and, and wonders. The Spirit of the Lord remained quiet even as the Roman Empire took over the known world. The Spirit of the Lord regulated the people of God to just simply waiting. But here he comes. The Spirit of the Lord that, that would lead the people to the promised land in Exodus. The Spirit of the Lord that hovered over the waters in creation in Genesis. The Spirit of the Lord which spoke the truth about Israel's history and judgment, also Israel's redemption, is now descending upon this Jesus. Because the coming Son is now in this act of baptism is inaugurating the Spirit's saving work once again. Now, just in case these two signs weren't enough, and that these signs weren't obvious enough to tell us who uh, Jesus is to God, God the Father himself comes into the fold of the story, his voice coming to the picture, stating the very clear claim of Christ, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Not this person has now become my beloved son, but this is my beloved son. Now, what is so interesting about this final statement is not just the reality of the Son of God being Jesus Christ. That alone is crystal clear from the first two signs, but this final declaration, God cements the case as something incredible and the reason why Jesus was baptized in the first place. Now, in order to understand this, I need to teach you something very quick about baptism. What is being symbolized in baptism? Now, some people believe that baptism is a sign of the cleaning of sins given to us in the gospel. Now, it's, it's the symbol of the washing of, of our sin, right, the stain of sin. Now, that is certainly true. Now, as long as we don't believe that the act of baptism itself, you know, the water is actually cleaning us, we don't believe in what's known as baptismal regeneration, but it's a sign and a seal of God's promises. But how does that cleaning occur? What is baptism wrestling with? What is that symbol wrestling with in terms of how that happens? You see, baptism is symbolizing judgment. Judgment. Scripture speaks plainly about how baptism is correlated with the flood of Noah. That in order to restore God's people, God needed to judge the earth with the flood of water as punishment for the wickedness of mankind. So baptism, in other words, is both judgment and forgiveness. It is both law and gospel. It is both the gavel of punishment and the grace of peace. So with that in mind, right, this idea of baptism as judgment, let's move on to a second question, and that's this. 
Who is the firstborn son of the Lord God Almighty in the Old Testament? Exodus 4.22 says this, Israel is my firstborn son. And what did the people of God, Israel, deserve? Did Israel keep its covenant with the Lord? No. Has any generation of God's people, us as the children of God, His church, have we kept the commands that God has given to us? No. So Israel and us should be cast away. We should be distant from God as His creation. But Mark here makes this bold declaration that this Jesus, this suffering servant from a nowhere town, heralded by a man from the wilderness, coming into a state of humility, takes the baptismal judgment onto himself for the salvation of all of God's people. So Jesus gets baptized not because Jesus needs to repent. It's not because Jesus needs to be rightly judged for some kind of hidden sin that Jesus committed. It's certainly not to become God. Jesus in this moment is signifying what his life and his ministry will be all about taking on the judgment due for the people of God, restoring them, giving them repentance and redemption for their sins, and being the new Israel. Jesus represents the second Adam in human history. The Father who loves the Son sends the Spirit down to proceed from the Son and the Father. This Father declares this God is satisfied with the work of the Son for the salvation of His people. So this incredible presence here of the Trinity is no doubt a great mystery of our faith. I can't even begin to describe all the things that happen here without running into some sort of terrible analogy or heresy that would get me in a lot of trouble, right? But what is plain here in the text is the dilemma that Mark is giving us. Straight out of the gate from his gospel right from the beginning, before C.S. Lewis ever gave us the lunatic, liar, or Lord paradigm, Mark is giving it to the churches in Nero's age. He's essentially asking the question over to the people of God who are experiencing a crisis of faith through suffering and asking them, do you believe that this Jesus is the Son of God? In the evidence that Mark is giving, in the evidence that John the Baptist is giving, in the evidence that God himself is giving, the question now turns over to you. Do you believe that Jesus is the suffering servant? the mighty one who is God himself, do you believe that is Lord? Who do you believe Jesus is? I'll never forget one of uh, the lectures that one of my seminary professors said when he was talking about biblical counseling. Before he got into sort of all the technical jargon and all the things that we need to to know as pastors, uh, he just said, look, I just want to boil down what counseling is for you in just two simple questions. If you, if you can explore these two questions with whomever you're trying to help and lead, just ask them these two questions. And it's just overly simplistic, but I think it's wonderful to think about. He says this, in order to help anyone or any person, just ask them, who do you believe Jesus is? And how do you live in light of who Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? And how do you live in light of who Jesus is? You know, the more I dwell on that reality, the more I realize how correct that is. How you define Jesus and the standard that you use to define him will carry over into every single area and fragment of your life. If you have an imbalanced view of Christ, if Jesus is just a God of wrath, then you will always feel humiliated. You will always feel shame. You will always feel burdened. 
If Jesus is only joyful, then you will never ever dare be challenged on sin in your life. You will always respond defensively. You will always respond with aggression because you have an imbalanced view of Jesus as the one of grace and not also justice. If Jesus to you is only just looking over your shoulder being disappointed, then you will never feel as though you could do anything for him. And if Jesus is a God of wealth and prosperity, then you will only look to him in those moments of wealth and prosperity, and you will never search him in your suffering. Who is Jesus to you? If you have a Jesus of your own making outside of scripture, if you're making Jesus into someone he isn't, you will make a train wreck of your faith because you are living out of the wrong gospel. But if Jesus is everything that he claims to be out of his word, then guess what? We can go through all of life, the highs, the lows, the hardships, the struggles, the joys, the sufferings that we as a church face, all together because the miracle of Mark, perhaps the greatest miracle that we'll be discussing is that the Son of God would be baptized on our behalf. That God himself would bear our judgment and our shame. That we no longer suffer in vain, but press forward to the glory of God that he has prepared for us. This is good news. So who is Jesus to you? This is the question we will be exploring for the next four months. And the answer to Mark's generation of Christians is the answer for all generations. But for now, I pray that you would see Jesus as Mark sees Jesus, as John the Baptist sees Jesus, as God the Father saw Jesus. I pray that you would seek him amidst the chaos you might already be experiencing as we enter into 2023. And I pray that you would love him more deeply and truly, more lovingly than you had in any other year, because you will have discovered and known who Jesus is. Let's pray together.